We are stronger than we think we are when we're filled with the Spirit. The Bible tells us that we can be filled with the Spirit. And when you see others that are filled with the Spirit, they're in tune with the Spirit. And as a result of that, you see life change around them. You see people running to Jesus. You see marriages flourish because the couples, the husband and wife, both are filled with the Spirit. They're letting God work through them, the God that's in them. Scripture is clear that there are moments that we're filled. Yes, the Spirit lives in us, but also the Spirit fills us. It supernaturally empowers us at different moments as we walk in this Christian journey. And from time to time, you see that played out. It's played out in a, 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 a venue in many, many arenas. It doesn't just have to be on the church. Or it doesn't have to be in your home. Sometimes it, it plays out in those areas that you're gifted and talented in. And you remember it because something is different about that person. In 1924 Olympics, there was a runner called Eric Little who decided prior to the Olympics that that he wouldn't run in the Olympics, the event that he was really good at. He was the, the, the one who was supposed to win the 100 meters. He was fast and from his country. And because it was on a Sunday, um, he wouldn't run because he decided that he would honor the Sabbath and not run. And so his country began to scramble because he was the, the prime candidate for his country to win. And so instead of running the 100, he began to train for the 400. And so he ran some preliminary races, but he wasn't the fastest. But still, he felt like God gave him a chance to give him glory. And out of that came an opportunity for him to run in the 1924 Olympics. And when he ran, something happened to him. He was supernaturally empowered. And while he's running, you'll hear him articulate these words and, and, and it's remembered in the movie called Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie to, to watch how a man of God, empowered by God, uses his gifts and talents. And even to this day, we remember him. So in 1924, he lines up on the track. He's on the outside lane, and he can't see who's behind him. And he decides to run in such a way to give God glory. And I believe he is filled with the Spirit, and he gives God glory. Watch this clip. Taylor, Etats-Unis, numéro 278. Taylor, Taylor. Don't expect I'll see you till after the race. Taylor, numéro 278. What's the deal with this guy, Little? Coach, he a problem? No problem. He's a flyer. He's had two races today already. He'll die. Just swing along, you guys, and wait. After 300 meters, rigor mortis sets in. You'll pull him in on a rope. Johnson, Canada, Good luck, Taylor. Watch out for a little. Coach says no problem. He's got something to prove, something personal. Something guys like Coach will never understand in a million years. says in the old book, he that honors me, I will honor. Good luck, Jackson Schultz.
So where does the power come from to see the race to its end from within? God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Little went on to win the 1924 Olympics 400 meter. I don't know if you catch that phrase, but he said he believed that God made him to run and God made him fast. And when he runs, he runs for God's pleasure. If you track his story, you will see that he gave up a lot to be used by God. After this Olympics, he found himself as a missionary in China and with his sister Jenny. Eventually, he found himself in a camp for prisoners and near the end of his life in China, it was written, it says in his last letter to his wife, written on the day he died, little wrote of a suffering, a nervous breakdown due to overwork. He actually had an inoperable brain tumor. Overwork and malnourishment may have hastened his death. Little died on February the 21st, 1945, five months before liberation. Langdon Gilkey later wrote, the entire camp, especially the youth, were stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. According to a fellow missionary, Little's last words were, it's complete surrender in reference to how he had given his life to God. In 2008, many, many, many years later after his death and after he was the Olympic 400 meter champion, Just before the Beijing Olympics, Chinese authorities revealed that Little had refused an opportunity back during that time to leave camp and instead gave his place to a pregnant woman. Apparently, the Japanese and British, with Churchill's approval during that prior time, had agreed upon a prisoner exchange for him. Yet news of this final act of sacrifice surprised even his family members. He continued to give up and honor God. Fifty-six years later... After the 1924 Olympics, Scotsman Alan Wells won the 100-meter sprint in the 1980 Moscow Olympics. When asked after victory if he had run the race for Harold Abrams, who had won the 100-meter in 1924, the race that Little was supposed to race, they asked him, did you run the race for Harold Abrams? The last 100-meter Olympic champion from Britain who had died two years previously, Wells responded in 1980, No, I would prefer to dedicate this to Eric Little. Eric Little stood for God. Eric Little, I believe, was filled with the Spirit even as he ran that race, and God got greater glory for that. So there are these moments, and they come in a variety of ways, where when we listen to God and we respond to the Spirit, where we're capable of doing more than we could ever do on our own. 
And it plays out in a variety of ways. In my hand are two basketballs. Let me try to explain. And if you were to look at these closely, you would see that they're the same size. One's a little more worn than the other. But both are used for the game of basketball. And so if you were to choose a ball to use just from appearance, you would say, I would take either one. There's not really one that you would grab and say, I'll take that one over the other. But they're intended to be used for basketball. They have a purpose. They were built, they were designed by their creator to, to, to become a ball in the game of basketball. Yet the closer you get, you would see there's a distinct difference about these basketballs. Because one is able to be used better in the game of basketball the way it was intended to than the other is. And the reason it is, one is filled with air. The other one isn't, and it's flat. So if you were trying to dribble this ball down the court, you would find it very difficult because it's not living up to what it was made for. It's not filled to become what it was supposed to become. Yet this ball obviously has what it was able to become. It is filled so you can use this ball for what it's supposed to be used for. We, like these basketballs, are vessels who have the living God living in us. Yet from time to time, Scripture tells us that we are filled with the Spirit. And we can live up and above what we thought we could ever do on our own and become what we're supposed to be. We are used by Christ in ways that we couldn't do on earth. We are filled with the Spirit. Scripture says it this way. In Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us in verse 18, we should be filled with the Spirit. In fact, when you look at that passage, it reminds us this. That this isn't a helpful add-on to our life or something we should shoot for. Like, I want to be filled like six times this week. It is a command in the imperative mood, which means, in other words, it's not an option. You and I should be filled with the Spirit. It is in the plural form, too. Not just to an individual, when Paul wrote that, but to everyone who calls themselves a Christ follower. Not to super saints, not to mega Christians, not to spiritual giants, but those of us who are born again and have the Spirit. We should be filled regularly. It's also in the passive voice. It means the object has something acting upon it from the outside. In other words, we don't fill ourselves. We don't wake up and say, today I'm going to be filled by the Spirit and I'm going to be a better father, better husband, a better worker, a better servant of Christ. No, we don't do it ourselves. We put ourselves in position where the Spirit of God fills us. It's also in the present tense. Like, unlike the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation, this is a repeated event. In other words, it could be read being filled with the Spirit regularly. Continually give control over your life. It happens over and over and over again. It should happen as, as an individual. So right now, you and I have the opportunity to live up to our redemptive potential and be filled. Some of us aren't filled. Some of us, yes, the Spirit lives in us, but He's not empowering us the way Scripture says He can. The problem is this. Most of us spend the majority of our lives stuck kind of in the middle. Sometimes, well, I want to be filled with the Spirit, but I battle my flesh. Galatians 5, verses 24 to 25 says that we should mortify, we should kill the flesh, we should destroy the flesh. And so there's these struggles that are pointing us away. And so today when you woke up, 
You could be a better husband, but you don't want to. You, you, you're, you have pride in your life, or there's sin in your life. You could be a better mother. You could be a better child. You could be a better follower. You could be at a better worker. But there's this pull, this tug at you says, I want to satisfy the flesh. We're supposed to cut off, kill the flesh that screams out. So we stand in the middle. Will I be filled with the spirit or will I be pulled away with the flesh? And so when we are filled, we live up to our redemptive potential. Then God gets greater glory. God does not get greater glory when we don't allow the spirit to fill us. We can fall way short of what we're supposed to be the majority of our lives, wasting them away. Here's the problem. We want the Spirit to fill us for what we think is best. Spirit, fill me up so that I can go do this. Spirit, fill me up so someone can be healed. Spirit, fill me up so I can get this job. Spirit, fill me up so I can have a better marriage. Spirit, fill me up. Spirit, fill me up. Instead of, like last week when I said, instead of letting the Spirit lead you, you tried to lead the Spirit. We don't like listening. We don't like following. We want to lead. So, but Scripture says we should be led by the Spirit. And the question that determines that often is just this one. Am I doing this thing? Am I going on this path to give glory to me? Or am I trying to lift God up for greater glory? In fact, I think it's time we live the way Jesus intended us to live. Besides, Jesus sacrificed a lot for us to walk on planet earth, to have a personal relationship, and to give him greater glory. Scripture says this in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 49. It says, Jesus left the Holy Spirit behind. So when he was ascended into heaven, he left the Spirit behind. And it says in that passage that he opened the minds of the disciples so they could understand like never before. And then and only then did they truly understand what that meant. So since the ascension of Jesus, he has left the Spirit behind. He lives in us, however... We must give him full control of our lives. If you're living in sin, if you're, if you're chasing down the flesh, if there's pride, you will never be filled and you'll never live to your redemptive potential. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and I'll show you what it means to be filled. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. But turn to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 14 to 16 with me. Acts chapter 2, a spirit-filled person Someone that's spirit-filled has a holy boldness. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Stand with me. We'll read verses 14 to 16. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Read this out loud with me. Acts 2, verses 14 to 16. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Have a seat. There's evidence that now they're looking at these followers of Christ. Something's happened. Something's changed. Jesus is ascended into heaven. He leaves the spirit behind. And now there are these miraculous obvious manifestations of people who are living out their faith differently so that the people are saying, wow, those people look drunk. Something's weird about them. They're different. And so Peter stands up and says, hey, 
We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. This is just evidence of being filled by the Spirit. So Peter stands up and boldly says this. Look at verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised what? Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter says, what you're seeing, these great moves of God, you see these people miraculously doing things, it's happening because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. They are filled with the Spirit. We're not drunk, we're just, it is evidence of that God is working in a supernatural way through us. Now look at verse 37. Peter goes on to say this. When the people heard this, they were what to the heart? And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, then what shall we do if this is happening? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the what? The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized. And about how many were added to their number that day? This is right after. This is like not very long before this. Peter was the one that was denying Christ. Someone said when Jesus was going to Golgotha, when he was going to be crucified, there's a passage that says that he was walking behind the crowd and people came up to him three different times. Are you a follower of the way? Is Jesus your leader? And he denied Christ three times. Just months before this, he was a timid follower of Christ. He walked in fear. And now Christ is resurrected. Christ leaves planet earth. He leaves the Holy Spirit behind. And now a new Peter emerges from the ashes, filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy boldness, such a boldness that he stands in front of the Jews and says, Jesus is the Messiah. Now listen, you just don't stand up in front of people like that and proclaim Christ. Because you could lose your life. But Peter didn't care because he was bold because the Holy Spirit had filled him in a special way. And because of this boldness, look at chapter 2 and verse 37 again. Look what the people said and look what happened to them. It says, when the people heard him speaking, they were cut to the heart. One version says they were stabbed to the heart. In other words, they're like, whoa. Is that the same Pete? There's something about that man when he speaks, I feel deep conviction. There's something about that man when he stands up and glorifies God that I think I want what he has. So when a person is filled with the Spirit, it lifts God up and it causes people to ask this question. What's different about him? What's different about her? What makes her tick? 
and they realize that she and he is not the same person they were before they were filled. A deep conviction broke out on the people. When he spoke, it was spirit-filled. That was God working through him. Look at chapter 3 and look at verses 1 to 7. One day later, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg those from going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. In other words, the man's eyes must have been down. He was afraid to look at people. So the man gave them his what? Expecting to get what from them? Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what? Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with what? Wonder and what? At what had happened to him. In other words, we haven't seen anything like this before. Verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were what? And came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. He gives this convicting message. Now he sees a man who who needs to be healed. And so he speaks in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and this man is healed. And as a result, he's not bringing glory to himself. They're not after the healing themselves, but they're after the the God who healed. Always keep this in mind. We can become enamored more with the miracle than the God of the miracle. We can become more enamored with asking for something instead of receiving something from God. Let me explain a second how easily that shift in our mind can take place. Imagine two men decide right now to walk from the back of our auditorium to the front. Both are unsaved men. One man walks in and he has a limp. He limps the whole way down. He comes to the front. Another man walks down this side the whole way down. They both stand in front of me. Both men are lost eternally. Neither man knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. This man asks, can you pray that your God would heal my leg? It's six inches shorter. This man asks, I want to know the God that you talk about. I want to know the God that's changed some of the lives here at Grace Community. I want to move from death to life. Would you pray with me? I want to have miraculous intervention, turning from old man to new man. Both pray. So on this side, we pray. And this man's leg grows six inches. Now we pray here. And this man walks from death to life, surrenders, and now is a follower of Jesus Christ. In your mind, just be completely honest. Which one was the greater miracle? Which one can we become more enamored with? 
Which one would we walk away saying, I saw that today in the church that I attended. And because of that, I what? Which one of you would say, this is the greater miracle? Because a man who was lost and headed to hell, now because he trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in him and he's eternally saved. You see, here's we got to be careful of. We get caught up more in looking for this and we miss the God that can do both of those. And if we trust more in that than we do the God who can bring the miracle, our philosophy, our doctrine is shifted a skew from God. And we go looking for those and we follow the act instead of the God who did the act. Peter did a miraculous healing here. And because of it, those people were saying, I want what the God that did that. And it says that thousands were added to the number that day because they knew they couldn't do that on their own. And there's only one way to describe that. God, their God, did that. Pete didn't care what people said to him. In fact, after this moment, look in chapter 4. We move on. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Chapter 4 and verse 2. They were greatly what? Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message, what? What's it say? So the number of men who grew to about how many? The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question him. By what, what, what's the next word? Or what, what, did you do this? In other words, there was something different that just took place. It caught the attention. Number one, they recognize a new Peter. But they said, this just doesn't happen on so. By what power did this take place? By, by whom did this? In other words, can you see the difference here? They weren't so concerned by, by the, the act itself, but they were giving credit to the actor that did the act. And so there's where we must have balance. If we run to places to see that and we forget about the person, the God who did that, then we've come eschewed in our theology. We must always, always go back to Jesus. And the reason Jesus does miracles is so that people run to him, not to give credit to an institution, a ministry, a church, or an individual. And when that takes place, when a man's name is lifted higher because those kind of things are going, we have run lost away from Jesus Christ. Anytime man is elevated as opposed to God being elevated, then we have lost our way, the way that Christ intended us to go. So they asked the question, by whose name and whose power did that take place? So we have them looking and asking, look what happens next. Then Peter, verse 8, says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you, and he's looking at him, imagine this, and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of what? What is it? Jesus Christ of what? Whom you, now look, look at him, he's bold. By the way, whom you crucified. He didn't back down. He says, by the way, it was Jesus, the same Jesus that rose from the dead. And by the way, by whom you crucified. Back at you, big boys. Jim Brown paraphrase. That's what he's saying. But whom God raised from the dead, that this man does what? Stands before you what? Can you see what he's doing? He's not elevating the miracle. He's not elevating the man. He's elevating the God that did that. That's where it gets lost. As soon as the man is elevated, as soon as the church or ministry or person is elevated over God, we've taken credit for what only God can do. Look what happens next in chapter 4. Then Peter filled the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says this, by the way, to these Jewish people, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Look at verse 13. Then they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were what? Astonished. Why? They took note that these men had been with whom? Think about that for a second. The Bible tells us in verse 8 here that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he was filled, he had an unusual boldness that he didn't have prior to that moment. We live differently when we're filled with the Spirit. We aren't afraid of man. We don't walk in fear of man. We walk in respect of our God and we listen and we just say what he says we should say. How do you know when you're walking and how do you know whether you're filled with the Spirit? Well, let's back it up this way and ask this question. What would your church, the worldwide church of Jesus Christ, look like if everyone was as committed as you are? What would the church look like if everyone was committed as you are, gave like you gave, served like you served, prayed like you prayed? Would the church be a vibrant church if the church looked like you? So just picture a church, a couple thousand of you. Do you like the picture that you see? Is it a church that's on mission? Is it a church that's pounding the gates of hell? Is it a church that's advancing the kingdom? Is it a bold church? Are marriages flourishing? Is it a church that you would be proud to bring people into? You see, it comes back to us. The question is, how are we living out our faith? When we're filled with the Spirit, it moves us to live differently. He was bold, very bold. Here's what needs to happen. We need to know who we are. In order for us to be filled, we have to constantly remind ourselves who we are. 
Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Let me remind you today and remind me again. This is really, really good reminder. Because every once in a while, the enemy tries to tell us otherwise. We need to remind ourselves who we are. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Paul said this. I want you to be careful to read and pause every time we see spirit. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says this. Because you are his what? God sent the what? Of his son into our what? Okay, now let's pause. Let's break that down. Because you are his sons and daughters, because there was a conversion, because you trusted in Christ as your savior, God sent his son to save us and the spirit now fills us. Now read on with me. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls what? Out? What does he call out? Abba, Father. So look what he calls out, by the way. Now picture, spirit's living inside of us, and the spirit is calling out. He tries to remind us and all the time. I'm trying to remind you outside today. I'm trying to tell you who you are in Christ. But it says here that the spirit daily reminds us if we're listening. This is who you are. And he says this, the spirit cries out, to Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, those who those those you who are who are Christ followers, but God's what? And since you are his what, God has made you also a what? And then it says this: formerly you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not God. Small G. Then Paul says, but now that you know God, or rather are what by God? How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? This is an awesome picture of what the Spirit can do for us. Not only does he intercede and groan and moan for us when we don't know how to pray, but there's this picture here that the Holy Spirit who lives in us, he cries out for us, to the Abba Father, and he reminds us regularly, guess what? You're a child of God. Guess what? You're a co-heir with Christ. Guess what? I love you. Guess what? You're stronger than you should be. You're stronger than you think you can ever be. Guess what? You are God's son and daughter. And better yet, he says this, the Spirit wants you to know that you're known by God. Just camp on that for a second, that phrase. You and I are known by God. Now, I don't know if you've wrapped your mind around that lately, but I did again this week. There are billions of people who have ever lived on planet Earth. Billions. Billions of people. And right now, if someone walked up to God and said, Hey, you know Jim Brown? Sure do. He lives at 20081 County Row 146. He's my son. He's a child of God. I love him. Uh, he's redeemed. He's born again. He's 51 years old. He, he lives here. This is his past. This is his future. He, he is a co-heir with Christ, and he is my child. Do I know him? You bet I know him. That's my son. Now think about that. Right now, the Spirit reminding you, Abba Father, remind them that you are known by God. Right now, your name, if it's brought up as God is holding the world together, you know, he's like holding it together, and someone said, hey, 
Do you, do you know that person who tends grapes? Do you know Sue? Do you know Sally? Do you know Amanda? Do you know Lori? Oh, yeah, I know. They're my kids. Do you know how good it is as a parent when you can say, hey, see that, that, that blonde-haired girl there that's a sophomore at Grace College who has a bright smile, who loves Jesus Christ, who, who, who has championed Jesus wherever she goes? <laughs> I know her. That's my daughter. Do you know that 21-year-old guy that right now that's a senior at Grace College? You know, his name is Joshua James Brown. You know him? I know him too. He's, he's my son. Do you know that, 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 that freshman at Fairfield High School amongst all the millions and billions of people that's a freshman? His name is Isaiah Jacob Brown. Yeah, that's my boy. Jesus does that for you every... You are known by the living God. If that doesn't empower you up, then you are dead today. That's all I got to say. Sounds like you are, by the way. You are known by the creator God of the universe. And Peter knew that too, and it caused him to live differently. Meanwhile, the authorities don't like what's happening here. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. They don't like all these, what's happening in Acts. Look back at Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized the unscored name, they were astonished. But, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, they, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these dudes? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Paul's right there. Here's the good news. No one has stopped the work of Jesus Christ. We're alive today because it didn't stop here. And the Christian church is bolder and braver than it can ever be because no one can stop the work of Jesus Christ and spirit-filled people. Praise God for Peter and John or we would not know Christ today. Look what it says in verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them to speak or teach, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Like, hey, don't do that anymore, okay, boys? But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was 40 years old. By the way, who are they praising? God. Not the man who, by God's grace, was able to pray over them, but they gave praise to God. Meanwhile, thousands of people are repenting and coming to Jesus. The early church was forming because of spirit-filled men like Peter and John. You want to see evidence of the spirit moving, then there better be some lives that are being transformed. There must be, or the the spirit's not moving. I'm afraid, though, that there are many Christians and churches who are more like the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 and 15 18, who are neither cold nor hot, who are lukewarm. I'm afraid we have too many lukewarm Christians, and they're loving it. In fact, I want to read something for you from a book that I, that I have that's a powerful resource by Jim Cimbala. And in this book, Jim Cimbala says this regarding the, the church of Laodicea. He says, and what about our churches today where many parishioners can barely manage to show up once a week for a one-hour service? 
which must also be entertaining. Can these, spirit, can these be spirit-filled churches? What about congregations being so concerned about black or brown people attending that they pick up and relocate whenever the neighborhood changes? Then he says this, as D.L. Moody once preached in 1876, this is what D.L. Moody said, God has got a good many children who have just barely got life, but no power for service. The Holy Spirit coming upon them with power is distinct and separate from conversion. If the scripture doesn't teach this, I'm ready to correct it. I believe we should accomplish more in one week than we should in years if we only had this fresh filling of the Spirit. A great many think because they have been filled once, they are going to be full for all the time after. But oh, my friends, Moody said, we are leaky vessels and we have to be kept right under the fountain all the time in order to keep full. Let us keep near him. In other words, the only way we're filled is by walking in his presence, submitting ourselves and surrendering and walking away from sin and mortifying the flesh, destroying the flesh that wants to pull us away. When you see a fresh work of God, you never forget it. We need more Peters and Johns who move away from the middle and say, I will follow hard after Jesus. Here's a good question to ask. Do people run to Jesus after spending time with you? When they watch your marriage, when they watch you in public, when they watch you in the workplace, do they say, whoa, there's something different about them. Even though they're unschooled and ordinary, they become extraordinary when the Spirit fills them. I want the God that they serve. Have you ever noticed someone who's filled with the Spirit? A passion for God seems to ooze from their pores. Have you ever seen just the opposite? I have. And the church is loaded with born again people who have the living God in them, but they operate like that because they haven't been filled with the spirit. God does not and has not sent his son to the cross for us to live like that. He wants us to live above our own ability. I'm afraid way too many of us fill our schedule with things that have little eternal value. And we disguise it by saying, I'm doing it for God, yet truly we know it's for us. When you are filled with the Spirit, expect resistance. Show me a woman. Show me a man who's filled with the Spirit. I'll show you people who in their past lives are being transformed. I'll show you marriages that are flourishing. I'll show you children that are running after Jesus. I'll show you supernatural things happening because they're listening and being led. I will show you transformation. But I'll also show you someone who has a big bullseye on her back or on his back. And you get thrown under the bus from time to time. This week, by, I went to the internet, and every once in a while, it's been six or seven months since I've done so, so I typed in Jim Brown Grace Community Church on Google, just typed it in, and the page came up, and there were bunches of things. I wanted to see what our testimony was on the World Wide Web. I think it's good. Have you ever typed in your name? So I typed in my name. So I went to page number two, and the headline said, Cult Leader Jim Brown. Whoa! It's been a while since I've been a cult leader. And by the way, I've been accused of many things. 
and went on to read this article by a man that I've never met, by a man who's never applied the Matthew 18 principle with me and talked to me, by a man who hides himself behind this blog with no way to respond to it, by a man who's never been within miles of me, this is what he said about me. This is just one more emerging pastor who arrogantly thinks he can improve on the already sufficient power of God to transform lives. I've never met the man. And he gathered that information from bits and pieces of posts that I put, of things that I've said, and that's how he has articulated. You know what I did? I prayed for the man after I asked God to sick him. But... (laughs) Because there must be something in his life, you know, and also he must have got beaten up in fifth grade or something. That's all I can say. But that's sad to me that a a follower of Jesus Christ would spend all of his time tearing down the church instead of going after people who need Jesus. Peter is filled with the Spirit. And in chapter 5, it says this. Look at verse 38. Chapter 5 and verse 38. Peter, filled with the Spirit. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will what? But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then it says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin. What were they doing? Rejoicing because they were opposed. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never what? Stopped what? Teaching and what? Proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. A spirit-filled person isn't afraid of what man can do to them. Even if it means the death of them. Because they know their next breath is in the presence of the living God. They got purpose in their life. A holy boldness for, that rises up amidst all kinds of opponents. All kinds of resistance. All kinds of people who want to go against them. But remember, we are humans and we can fail. As quick as we can be filled, the next second we can fall. And you must remind yourselves of that. Recently, I heard about another Christian leader who fell. And this is what they said about this man who fell, who was making a profound difference in ministry. It said this, his character did not keep up with his calling. Please know that you can fall and I can fall and pride comes before destruction. Know that when you turn up the temperature for Jesus Christ, so does the enemy. However, a spirit-filled person gives an opportunity for a greater testimony for Jesus Christ. Seriously, when Jesus left the Holy Spirit, he says, I'll leave you the comforter behind. Now, seriously, why in the world would we need a comforter, if, comf, a comforter if our lives are already comfortable? So if there's not something uncomfortable about the way you live out your faith, 
Why do you need a comforter? And many who call themselves Christ followers try to run to comfort. Oh, I hope I can have this house. I hope my kids can go to this school. Oh, I hope I can have this retirement. Oh, I hope I can own this vehicle. Oh, I hope I can have this amount of money in the bank. Oh, I hope this to bring me comfort. And the reality is, why would we need a comfort of the Holy Spirit if we're already comfortable in being us? There should be a sense where we're running to the dark. We're leaning on his power and not our own. We must desire to be filled and denounce sin and repent otherwise. So the question is this today. Which vessel are you? And which one do you want to be? If you want to see the world run to Jesus Christ and for him to get greater glory, then you must Open yourselves up to be filled. Otherwise, you're just a vessel who houses the Holy Spirit who isn't able to operate and function the way he wants to. Lord, help us today. Help us to long after you. Help us to be filled with the Spirit. Help us to place ourselves in a position where you will fill us. We can't do it ourselves, but we can ready ourselves by cleaning our hearts, by meditating on your word, and by by spending time with you. I pray that you'll raise up a generation, a church, that's filled with the Spirit regularly, so that many will look and say, boy, there's some unschooled, ordinary people who are doing some extraordinary things because of their God, and I want to run after the God that fills them. Oh God, help us to clear our schedules of meaningless stuff that we just fill it with to bring glory to ourselves. And and God, help us not to just have minimum requirements when it comes to following you. May we put as much effort in following you as we do with all the other things on our schedule so that you get greater glory. Oh Lord, let your glory fall in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.